So let me tell you a story about bicycles, or maybe a couple of stories about bicycles. So a few years back, uh, somebody told, stole two of my bicycles from my yard, and I felt very violated by this, partly because the bicycles were not visible from the road. That meant somebody had come on to our property and kind of cased it and realized, yeah, there's a couple of not very well-secured bikes there. And then also, I think, you know, a Freudian would say I had some kind of cathexis with my bicycle. I projected emotions and values onto it. Probably a Norman O. Brown-driven post-Freudian would say, would invite me to think about what part of my body is most deeply in contact with my bicycle. Of course, the answer to that is, you know, I mean, your junk, right? But your junk is really your treasure. So it's another reason why you might feel, you know, extra violated by the theft of your bicycle. Although, if I just read in the paper about somebody's bicycles being stolen, I wouldn't really regard, regard that as a particularly grand theft. Bicycles get stolen all the time. I mean, they really do get stolen all the time. But if it's my bicycle, then, then it's a problem. And then you also think about, you know, one of the most acclaimed movies in history is De Sica's The Bicycle Thief, which is about basically poverty in post-war Italy and the necessity of having a bicycle to get certain jobs done so different people steal bicycles. There's kind of, pun intended, a cycle of theft and poverty. Uh, and it's understandable why, and understandable and tragic at times, why somebody would steal a bicycle. And that's just bicycles. Um, I should say one more other thing about my bicycles, which was when we were trying to figure out who would have known the bicycles were there? We thought about people who came onto our property. And one possibility would be the people who show up to do the lawn mowing and, you know, shrub trimming and stuff like that. Uh, it wasn't, that's not who it was. But um, that company, that firm employed, as I recall, a number of Peruvian people. So think about that. Because, like, I'm mad about who stole my bicycles. Well, the Peruvians could be kind of mad about the fact that Hiram Bingham, eventual governor of Connecticut, uh, marches down to Machu Picchu and just goes home with a bunch of stuff, antiquities that he decided were of value and were more valuable where a whole bunch of, you know, privileged white people could look at them in museums than they were in Peru. And and then we could top it all off with, with a, by saying this whole drama, any American drama, takes place on arguably stolen land. Um, I mean, this, you know, this this land, whatever our concept of ownership is, and you have to have a concept of ownership if you're going to have a concept of theft, whatever that is, uh, it includes the idea that this land did not used to belong to the people who wound up claiming they owned it. All right. So I've babbled long enough. We have a terrific show ahead of us. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the whole concept of theft. I should say this uh, show was conceived of and produced by one of our interns, uh, Abi uh, Levine, uh, who's done a terrific job with this. He's been, we've had great interns this year. And in fact, uh, tomorrow I'm going to start working on a show by our other intern, uh, Dylan Reyes. So let's dive in uh, with our first guest, Robert Tominski, the author of The Psychology of Theft and Loss, Stolen Fleeced. He's a psychotherapist with training in Jungian analysis and an amateur student of Greek mythology, which comes into play here. Robert Tominski, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the chance to to talk with you. Did you get your bikes back? No. <laughs> Although I probably knew, well, I, I knew a good place where I could have found them. There was a there's a place that 
<laughs> famously resells stolen bikes not too far from me. But at a certain point, I just let go of the whole thing. But, you know, listening to that story, I guess I would be interested in, in what your perspectives were, because really this is kind of at the heart of your book. You have to think about who stole the bikes and why uh, and how, what the effect uh, on the other side, the, 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 the so-called wronged party is too psychologically. But maybe begin with the psychology of theft. Yeah, well, uh, I think you you, you kind of honed in on on sort of in in my book the categories and the thread that I use is when we lose something that we don't want to lose, um, that often you know can kind of become either consciously or unconsciously a motivation to want to steal something back. Um, those bikes, you know, the way you spoke about them, they had some kind of meaning for you. And, you know, even if, if we don't, don't want to get into the, the meaning of what, what they might've had for you, there is this idea of something called the endowment effect, which is a little cognitive loophole we all have where what we have, we don't want to part with. And, you know, cognitive psychologists have studied this now for, for decades and, um, it's really a, a tricky thing. So, so there's that piece of it. And the other thing is that you felt violated, right? You, mm -hmm. you, somebody got, came onto your property, you said somebody cased, probably cased it. And so, so there's that sense of a boundary, you know, that, that we typically respect in social interactions being violated. And, and so that's, you know, a couple of the things that you're hitting on there are, are the loss, the boundary violation. Um, and then, you know, there's also that that kind of what happened to them. Um, and so that that's there's a bit we're left with a bit of a mystery often when things aren't recovered. So so those are different kind of different aspects to, to theft, I think, that affect a victim. Um, we don't we don't really know about you know, the thieves in your case and what might have motivated them, um, you know, could have just been opportunity. It could have been, you know, from some, re there could have been some real need. Um, there could have been some way of wanting to maybe do something playful. A lot of adolescents engage in that sort of theft, leading to shoplifting, but also just stealing things that, that might appear handy to steal. Um, so there, there are a lot of different reasons why, why people steal. Yeah, I think you just touched on a whole bunch of really interesting ones. And so, I mean, yeah, probably in this case, just based on what I know about where I live and I mean, look, Cary Grant did not steal my bicycles. My bicycles were almost definitely stolen by people poorer than me who were going to, going to resell them. Uh, and, and on that basis, I think it's, you know, one has to mute one's outrage a little bit because I live a life of privilege compared to the people who stole the bikes from me. But maybe we can circle back to that in a second because I think you mentioned another interesting thing, which is when we're of a certain age, when we go through adolescence, there is this kind of idea that we should steal something. You know, uh, there are there are groups, gangs and clubs and stuff you can't join until you steal something. Uh, and there's this kind of idea that you should commit that kind of violation. Uh, and, and I wonder if you've thought very much about that. There's sort of obviously some interest in taboo breaking. Uh, there's probably some uh, also adrenaline associated with it. Sure. Yeah. No, that's a, I mean, it's a really great question because I think there, there's a, a whole idea of adolescence that, that you go through, 
you know, you pass through certain milestones heading to adulthood, and they, they do have to do with experimentation and often testing what's accepted or, or what we believe to be accepted and kind of seeing how much wiggle room there is on the other side of those rules. So um, so that that certainly is a part of it. And then the other part for adolescence is the brain hasn't fully matured yet. And, and so in addition to the mind not having matured, there's the fact that the brain just itself is continuing to grow. And so impulsivity or being impulsive is often something that uh, that adolescents engage in just, just as part of their growth process. But what you, I think, were asking me about, Colin, was the, the whole idea of like passing a test in a way. And one, one way to think about that is like part of growing up, whether it's in adolescence or early adulthood, but also in other parts of our lives, is this idea of being initiated into a new phase. And so one way to do that is to cross a threshold. And those thresholds can be, you know, you, they're usually symbolic and often we don't, we don't even realize we're crossing them when we do. But, um, but for somebody stealing, like you said, that they literally crossed the threshold of your property. And so, so that, that often for adolescents can be, you know, one of the ways to feel like, yeah, I kind of passed that test and now I'm initiated into the next phase, which gives gives us all a sense of power or swagger or just like that we've accomplished something. So, um, so adolescent, you know, typically um, if they're going to show up like in a, uh, to a psychotherapist or even in court, it's, it's because of shoplifting. And, and so that's, that's where, you know, the test has happened in a, in a public space and um, also in a space that's usually guarded um, where there are cameras and where there's a whole, you know, series of, of things that a person has to try to outsmart. And, and so that's, that's part of working with the kind of the trickster element of being a teenager, <laughs> Right. And I, 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 let's see if we can kind of dip into one of your other areas of interest and link it up here, too. So there's a sense in which, uh, you know, uh, obeying the law and not stealing stuff and things like that are, are effectively Apollonian uh, in nature. Or to use the more contemporary uh, version of that, you're an order Muppet. You know, there's a whole idea that the Muppets uh, can be divided up into order Muppets, which is basically Kermit and a couple of other Muppets, and then chaos Muppets, which is all the other Muppets are chaos Muppets. And, and you know, as we, as we pass through life's systems, whether it's the school system and the parental control is, uh, systems that you live under as an adolescent, and then you're going to just move on into other systems where either you're going to, to bow to the god Apollo uh, and, and essentially uh, preserve order. Or you're going to bow to Dionysus uh, and and indulge in chaos. When you're an adolescent, I, I think the temptation to at least indulge your Dionysian side uh, is pretty powerful. And I wonder if that's part of the intoxication uh, of stealing stuff. Well, that's great that you bring that up because actually the, the person who stole from Apollo was his brother Hermes. Yes. He stole some of Apollo's cattle. I don't know how much you remember the story, but 
Um, so, so that's actually where one of the most ancient stories about stealing. And part of why that story is so important is because I, I think we could argue that where we first learn about stealing is in our families. And, you know, it could be something material, it could be money, um, but it can also be affection, it can be attention, those, those other things kind of get stolen in families. So, um, so, so, yeah, I think, you know, Dionysius is sort of a, a later incarnation, I would say, of, of uh, you know, kind of more a sort of combination of drunkenness mm-hmm. and, and experimentation with the wild. Um, whereas Hermes is much more a trickster god. And so, so you have that again in adolescence, that one of the one of the tasks is how do we tame our trickster side? How do we that that kind of part of that we all have that wants to break things or wants to, you know, cross somebody's property to take a bike that looks kind of appealing and ready for the taking. That 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 can also be very tricksterish, and and um, that that gets us all into trouble at different points in our lives. Right. Although I would say mythology and fairy tales are kind of polyethical about this stuff. You know, I mean, the messages are kind of mixed, right? Um, Prometheus steals fire for us. I mean, he gets punished like crazy, but I mean, we're the beneficiary of this theft. And and Hermes is this kind of divine cat burglar, and and you know, and Odysseus is a thief and he uses stealth and cunning much more than say Achilles does and and you know to a certain degree Homer valorizes that difference a little bit you know um but Homer stops way short of condemning Odysseus for operating that way and stealing stuff you know it's one of the things that's kind of cool about him right and and I think that's also true in fairy tales i mean jack steals all kinds of stuff from the, the giant when he's got the beanstalk. And then there's sort of a lot of stealing by eating. I mean, Goldilocks eats porridge that doesn't belong to her, all that stuff. It seems to me that the messages of mythology and folktale are a little bit mixed uh, about theft. It isn't treated the same way uh, as other kinds of crimes. Yeah, no, no, I, I like your word polyethical because uh, these, these, I think the ancient stories and, and fairy tales to also to some extent um, that they're, they're not meant, I mean, they're often used to teach a lesson or there's the moral, the story idea, but I don't think that was their original intention. It was to show something about how people interact and where we get into trouble with one another and how groups struggle to resolve certain conflicts. And, you know, you mentioned Prometheus, and the thing about him stealing fire is, is that if you think about that kind of theft, that that actually was a, a really, you know, the the moral of that tale, or a lesson of that tale, is that was a wise thing that he did because once he had that, um, mankind could become enlightened, um, or humankind could become enlightened, and so so there there's the idea symbolically that what what Prometheus did was he he allowed for consciousness to emerge, and and so so that certainly sounds like a laudable laudable goal, and and I think when we get into the ethics and legality of stealing, it it can seem much more cut and dry. It can seem much more rigid. But that that's kind of not what what my book is about or what I was interested in. I was interested again in like something about like 
we we all have these experiences of stealing and of theft and what what is it how does it make us feel and what is it that we're not aware of that might have driven the the activity so right there in the title of your book is the notion of the golden fleece um so so explain how you process that in the ways that we're just discussing yeah well i when i initially you know i didn't know a lot about the golden fleece i sort of knew the comic book or the you know the sony pictures version which is jason's this hero he goes out on this quest it's the, the traditional hero's story and he gets the boon, the treasure, and he comes back with it. And, you know, there's great accolades, that sort of, it's the, the hero's journey story. But he actually is, isn't very heroic in the original myth. And so when I, I kind of um, was put onto it in a funny way, it was actually from a dream that I had, and I didn't understand the dream. And I was talking with a colleague who said, oh, that, that sounds a little bit like Jason and the Golden and so I thought, yeah, what, what is that story about? And so when I read it, what you, you really find out is, is that Jason, you know, he steals a lot and, and he's kind of a bit um, of a scoundrel. He really gets away. He's not, he's not the, the biggest hero in the, the myth. Actually, some people argue that the biggest hero is his wife, Medea, who of course we know is a child murderer, but again, that that's kind of like a popular interpretation. There's so much more complexity to these stories. And so Jason felt entitled um, to go to a foreign country and steal. He, he goes, I mean, it has all these tropes about cultural theft as well. He sails east um, to a kingdom called Colchis, which is in modern the country of modern day Georgia, to steal the fleece and return and um, to Greece so that he can claim the throne of a kingdom. And he has a kind of, you know, sort of um, not completely illegitimate claim to that throne, but the the king had sent him on this quest, thinking, "Oh, this guy will never come back." But he does, and, and he comes back again, partly because he gets other people to do things for him, including Medea, and, and that's how he steals the fleece. And so when I was reading this, I thought, my God, this is really kind of complicated. It's almost like a, 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 a version of a, of a well-designed heist that, that has many characters to it. And you think the guy who's the, the head of the gang is the one in charge. But when you start to, you know, dissect it a little bit, you realize that's not the case at all. So, so it's a, an interesting story, I think, archetypally about like that if you, an archetype is something that, you know, it's not a thing, it's really a tendency or a, uh, a sort of a, a, a pattern towards behavior, and we all have them in us. And so, I think the Golden Fleece is a, is really a bit of a story about the archetype of stealing. Right. It's more like Jason's Eleven, you know. Uh, and it's a heist movie, and 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 there's, well, my recollection too. It's been a while since I read that myth, but I, I think. The fleece is from a ram that started out in Jason's homeland, right? One of his relatives flew it across the sky and landed. So in a way, Jason could at least make the argument, eh, this is like the Machu Picchu stuff, you know? It should go back where it came from. Yeah, you could kind of do that. But what happened was, so it was two kids, uh, Phrixus and Helle, 
Um, they were a brother and sister and their father, um, who is again, kind of loose. I can't remember if he was an uncle or a great uncle to Jason, but he, he wasn't a direct, Jason wasn't a direct descendant. He, he's, he remarried and the stepmother, Eno was her name. She went mad and she was going to kill the children. And so the children, um, I, I think it might have been actually Apollo who appeared as an oracle, and he gave them this fleece, this, this ram that could fly, and told them to leave. And so they got on it and they flew eastward, and Heli fell off over the uh, what we think of as the Dardanellus, which is also known as Hellespont. Um, and then uh, Phrixos continued eastward and landed in this kingdom, Colchis. And, and as sort of a tribute, it was uh, to thank the gods for saving him. He sacrificed the, uh, the ram and then sheared it or, or skinned it and put the fleece in a, on an altar in a sacred grove. So it was a sacred item um, in that context of that country. And then Phrixos marries the king's daughter. And so he, you know, he really is sort of um, part of that, that culture having fled his own. So it's, it's kind of funny, yeah, like you're saying, like a funny cultural background to it too. You could think that Jason thought, yeah, I, I'm just taking back something that belonged to us, but that would ignore the whole history of what the thing actually was, which mm -hmm. was a sacred, you know, it wasn't just a means to escape, but it was a sacred uh, symbol. All right, we're going to stop there, although Robert Tominski is staying with us for the second segment. We're going to talk more about the psychology and neurology of theft after this. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
When we think of slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. All right, so we're back. We're talking about theft. Um, we're talking about the theft with Robert Taminsky, author of The Psychology of Theft and Loss, Stolen and Fleeced. Uh, he's a psychotherapist with training in Jungian analysis and amateur student of Greek mythology. We're also joined now by Lisa Feldman Barrett, a neuroscientist, psychologist, and distinguished professor, professor at Northeastern University's College of Science. She's also the author of Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain and How Emotions Are Made. So, Lisa Feldman Barrett, welcome to our conversation. Oh, I'm really pleased to be with you. So maybe, you know, we were talking at the beginning of the show about the theft of some bicycles from me. Um, but I'd be interested in knowing if you could say a little bit about what goes on in the brain. I mean, probably not the same thing all the time and, and in every case, but what goes on in the brain when somebody's stealing something, do we know anything about the neurochemicals that are released and stuff like that? And similarly, what goes on in the brain when somebody realizes that something of value has been stolen? Well, I think the first point to make, Colin, is the, what you said, which is that, um, you know, when, when we have an experience of surprise or of anger or what have you, um, it, there isn't one thing that's happening in the brain. There's not one circuit for surprise, one circuit for anger, one circuit for fear, and so on. Um, so every time you feel angry, uh, you know, it's possible that there's actually a different pattern in your brain that's occurring, um, depending on the situation that you're in, what your goals are, you know, what your behaviors are and going to be, and so on and so forth. So the idea that there's this, you know, one pattern for, for, um, you know, stealing or one pattern for dishonesty or one pattern for anger or fear or whatever your reaction is, is not really, that's not really how the brain works. Right. So unfair question, sort of. But um, on the other hand, there, there might be some things that we can understand, right? I mean, in other words, you know, we were talking before in the previous conversation about adolescence uh, sometimes steal for thrill, right? I assume there is some kind of welcome discharge of, of adrenaline that's maybe there in an act like that, or maybe we even get it if we're watching a heist movie, uh, watching George Clooney or, or some, you know, cat burglar uh, steal stuff. 
Yeah, for sure. I think really what you're talking about is um, arousal. So I'm not talking about sexual arousal, but basically your brain evolved and is structured to predict what's going to happen next um, because that's a very metabolically efficient way to run a brain. And when your brain encounters something that it didn't predict, there is an increase in arousal uh, that comes with an increase in neurochemicals uh, because what your brain's attempting to do is to learn this new piece of information so that it can predict better the next time. And you, your brain can make sense of that increase in arousal as, um, as fear, as stress, um, as anger, or as, you know, excitement, um, as, uh, you know, uh, encouragement, as determination. And part of um, this, sent, this meaning-making process um, is dependent on the kind of situation that you're in and, um, uh, you know, what your goals are. So uh, it's possible that um, when, you know, something is taken from you unexpectedly or, you know, uh, it disappears or uh, uh, you can't find it, um, it goes missing, um, you could feel very stressed by that, um, or, you know, you could find it really funny. <laughs> Similarly, you know, stealing can be um, uh, really stressful, or it could be, um, you know, really um, uh, energ energizing, depending on, you know, how your brain is making sense of that increase in arousal as it's attempting to learn so that it can reduce uncertainty. So I'm also assuming that there are some fairly primitive limbic uh, atavistic reactions to the idea of something being taken from you. And it seems right now that we're living in a state of kind of hypervigilance. But, but you know, a lot of political rhetoric right now uh, is about how uh, something can or will be taken from you, your jobs, your place in society, uh, your whatever sort of advantages that you've come to enjoy and relish can be stolen from you, can be undermined either by an influx of immigrants or by the teachings of, uh, uh, teaching of critical race theory or uh, affirmative action, that stuff that you, at least in your own mind, think belongs to you can now be wrested away from you. And, and that we're kind of, we've kind of been ginned up in, into a state of, a fairly negative arousal, to use your word. Yeah, so I think I, I think a lot of what you said makes sense. Um, the idea that whatever reactions we're having stem from some primitive limbic part of the brain is actually a myth. Um, uh, you know, this idea that we have, you know, an inner lizard that's like an inner beast that's lurking, you know, from inside our brains from ancient times long ago. It's not really how it works. Well, speak, However, for, your, speak for yourself. I definitely have an inner lizard, but go ahead. <laughs> but um, but uh, I guess the way that I see it is that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, people being in a constant state of fight and flight or... Um, uh, feeling like things have been stolen from them or, you know, also this idea that people are feeling just like really dragged out and kind of fed up. And all of that makes sense, except if you peek under the hood, I think a, another way of understanding what's happening is that everything is really uncertain. 
um, you know, I was supposed to go away for the holidays and uh, then 4,000 flights were canceled <laughs> due to, uh, you know, the Omicron um, uh, variant. And um, so you never really know what's going to happen next. And that kind of uncertainty, um, you know, is really taxing uh, on uh, your nervous system. The, the worst thing for a human brain is sustained uncertainty. And you're right. I mean, we, even before the COVID um, pandemic, we had tremendous chaos and uncertainty politically. Um, and then there are also issues, you know, related to climate change and all sorts of other future related issues. So there's a lot everywhere you turn, there's uncertainty. And the thing is, every time your brain encounters this uncertainty, you pay a little metabolic tax. And eventually what it does is drive you into a state, um, as you would say, of hypervigilance, where um, eventually you're just going to feel exhausted um, from constantly trying to, you know, learn something new so that you can, um, you know, give a little order to your life. And I'll just say that, remember, there are lots of ways to make sense of this increase in arousal, this um, kind of crappy feeling that comes from prolonged uncertainty. Um, because, you know, an uncertain future leaves us in a very stressful present. And there are many ways to make sense of the cause of that. Um, and handy dandy, you know, narratives are things like um, things that you don't agree with or things that that people offer to you, like, you know, an influx of immigrants or um, critical race theory or what have you. So my point is that if you look, you know, I'm not a historian, but if you look at the history of, um, you know, authoritarian uh, governments and so on and so forth, there's always a period of chaos followed by, um, you know, uh, a period where some, you know, leader or, or group of people is attempting to reduce uncertainty, asking people essentially to, to po pointing to immigrants or what have you and asking people to give away their their freedoms um, in order to get a little more security and predictability. I mean, I think it's probably no accident, even though we don't, as it turns out, have inner lizards, that, you know, uh, in the case of advancing a baseless claim uh, about the, the 2020 election returns, you know, the, oh, slogan, sure. the slogan became stop the steal. There, there is a way in which you know, people like George Lakoff and 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 at a much more practical uh, level, Frank Luntz uh, have talked about the power of language to excite in certain visceral responses. And stop this deal is really different from they counted the votes wrong. Oh, for sure. And actually, if you look, you know, if you peer into the brain, what you can see is that the neurons that are important for processing language for 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 understanding words and also speaking words are exactly the same as, uh, it's exactly the same system as the system that regulates your body. That is your heart, your lungs, your GI system and so on. Um, and so this is why words can have real power to physically change your, you know, your biological state in the moment as absolutely the case. You know, let's uh, bring uh, Robert Tominsky back into this conversation. Um, one of the things I was thinking a lot about in going over the material for this show was, Robert, how we feel about theft often does kind of tra trace back to what we might think of 
as redressing, redressing power imbalances. Oh, we can go back to Prometheus. What is Prometheus doing? Well, he's saying, well, the gods have fire. Why can't the people have fire? You know, and, and I think that tracks forward to the point of, you know, uh, well, I mean, we, we see Jean Valjean go to prison for stealing a loaf of bread. We all feel like that's an incredible injustice. He doesn't have any power. His family's hungry. He's stealing bread. But you could also argue that it goes forward into, you know, heist movies. I mean, Ocean's Eleven, George Clooney and his friends get together and uh, steal from a casino. Well, I mean, there's sort of a sense, well, Andy Garcia and his damn casino, they they take everybody else's money. They've got a lot of money. So it's okay uh, to, to, to steal back from them. But Robert, maybe you could kind of riff on that a little bit. Yeah, uh, I I was thinking about what what Lisa was just describing about the arousal and then like how how there are different outcomes to that and how we can organize an emotional response in very different ways. And I, 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 I what went through my mind was also about about people feeling cheated. And and so, um, you know, I think the pandemic has created a, a very widespread sense of uh, deprivation might be too strong a word, but I, I think it has some application. Um, but feeling cheated and feeling robbed, feeling like time, job, schooling, social contacts, intimacy, like a lot has really been taken from us. And, and so um, so that people would during this time have some, some kind of way of, you know, maybe taking whatever negative arousal they have and, and tilting it towards, yeah, I've lost a lot. Um, that, that to me, to me makes some sense. And, and, you know, what, Colin, what you were just saying about the, the, the glorification of stealing, I just read today that Bernie Madoff died last year. And of course, you know, he orchestrated one of the largest Ponzi schemes, uh, and kept it secret for, I think over 40 years, there were over $60 billion in paper losses, um, and $20 billion in hard cash. And I think the people who, who are on the receiving side of losing their money by having trusted him, they wouldn't glorify him and they wouldn't see at all what, what he had done for all those years as heroic. And so I think, again, like like that sense of being cheated, I, I, I think that we do all make narratives for sure. But, but if you have experiences where something like your bike was taken from you, there, there is going to be a way in which you construct something about like, yeah, that, that's a loss. I wasn't anticipating it. Um, and now, now I have to try and struggle with how I feel about that. That that's, you know, that's, that's not, uh, not an easy task. You know, Lisa, as he says that, I'm so glad he brought up, brought up Madoff because it's a, it's another part of this that we haven't really talked about, and that is the idea of theft in a context of intimacy. I mean, one of the reasons that Madoff is really, really troubling in a way that maybe Robin Hood or Carmen Sandiego are not is that he's stealing from people he knows. He's stealing from people in, in an atmosphere of intimacy. He's stealing from people over lunch and dinner. He's stealing from people whom he has looked in the eyes and absolutely promised uh, the opposite of what he is delivering. He's violating something much deeper I think, than our basic 
covenants about property, who owns what and who can take what from whom. This seems uh, a much deeper form of violation. Oh, I think so. I mean, you know, humans are social animals. We evolved to uh, be in relationship with each other. That is one of our major adaptive advantages. And so what this means is that the best thing for a human, for you, for me, for Robert, for anyone, the best thing for us is another human. Also, the worst thing for us is another <laughs> human. And um, and so the Madoff situation um, uh, is an example of um, a kind of an unexpected event, right? That's not just, you, you're not just bearing, you're not just paying a metabolic tax uh, because it's unexpected. You're, you're paying a major metabolic tax um, uh, because it's from a, uh, you know, a trusted close other. And of course, when, when we're talking about finances or property or ownership or, you know, things like that, we're always thinking in financial terms, but we're not really thinking um, in, um, in metabolic terms. And, you know, why would we? Because we can't reduce everything to metabolism, except that over the long run, you know, all these little taxes that we pay add up to vulnerabilities, that big vulnerabilities to metabolic illnesses like depression and uh, heart disease and diabetes and even Alzheimer's disease. So somebody at some point is going to look back, you know, some epidemiologist or historian is going to look back to this time at, as a major public health you know, crisis. But, uh, and I'll just add one other thing that Robert said, which I was reminded of the fact that um, I saw this quote today um, by uh, Joan Didion, who recently passed away. And she said, you know, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Mm -hmm. And so what's important about that is the metabolic cost that you pay, that you experience as feeling crappy or feeling dragged out or feeling really kind of shook up and, and kind of jittery. You know, there are many stories you can tell yourself ab about that. You can tell yourself a story about being robbed and being violated and, and so on and uh, having your time stolen. But you can also tell yourself other stories like I'm just, you know, I'm my body budget, my, my budget for running my body is, is a little bit in withdrawal and I, and I need to do a little bit of self-care. And I actually, you know, if I'm one of those people who's really lucky and, um, you know, isn't a service worker, I've been able to protect myself and have my meetings over Zoom and, you know, all the things that we sort of take for granted as part of the trap that uh, we find ourselves in, you know, you can um, be a little more mindful about it and, and play around with the meaning there. And that's not some kind of Jedi mind trick. You know, that's a, that's a, a real powerful capacity of the human brain. That's really, that's an impressive point. I like that. All right. We have to stop. I'm already in a lot of trouble with Abby, uh, Abby Levine, the producer of this episode, and I don't want that in my life. So uh, we're going to thank Elisa Feldman Barrett and Robert Taminsky. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about this in a very specific to museums context. What you want and what you will Working for your dollar bill Sad to see the old slave mill It's grinding slow but grinding still Walking home a youth gets killed 
Police free to shoot at will. Sad to see the old slave mill is grinding slow but grinding still. Nine to five, you know the drill. Weekends are a shot. I had to go fast because I screwed up the clock. Uh, thanks to Cat Pastor. She's our technical producer. Special thanks to intern Abby Levine, producer of this show, A Star is Born. Uh, thanks also to senior producer Lily Tyson, who I know has been helping out behind the scenes the way she does. All right. Uh, as we get ready to have one final conversation about museums, let's listen to, well, the Black Panther. Good morning. How can I help you? I'm just checking out these artifacts. They tell me you're the expert. Ah, uh, you could say that. They're beautiful. Where is this one from? The Bobo Ashanti tribe, present-day Ghana, 19th century. For real? What about this one? That one's from the Edo people of Benin, 16th century. Now, tell me about this one. Also from Benin, 7th century, Fula tribe, I believe. Nah. I beg your pardon. It was taken by British soldiers in Benin, but it's from Wakanda, and it's made out of vibranium. <laughs> Don't trip. I'm going to take it off your hands for you. That, of course, is Eric Killmonger, uh, Michael B. Jordan, actually. Uh, joining us now is Chip Colwell, founder of Sapiens Magazine, and a podcast by the same name, which makes anthropology accessible to the masses. That would be us. He is a former senior curator at the Denver Museum of Earth and Science and the author of Plundered, Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits. Uh, he's with us now. So, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much for having me. So for a long time, there was this notion, and it's kind of embedded in that little clip there, that museums mm -hmm. were essentially neutral places that, you know, they got stuff, they, they found antiquities, they received things, and then they displayed them, and the world was better for it. The more that we mm -hmm. knew about the rest of the world, the more that we knew about science, art, culture from different places, just great. Who cares how or where Hiram Bingham got those <laughs> uh, antiquities uh, from Peru? They're there for us to look at. Maybe, maybe you could sort of talk Talk about how that uh, attitude transitioned into something else. Sure. Well, the people who had their stuff taken uh, cared all along, uh, you know. So there is a long history of uh, communities where all these, you know, items came from objecting to the theft of their ancestors' bodies and to their sacred objects and everything that made their culture what it is. So. The modern museum was really born out of global colonialism uh, over the last several centuries when European nations, for the most part, uh, were traipsing across the globe. They were collecting the things that they thought captured the, the people and the place uh, where they were trying to colonize. And so over the years, thousands of sacred objects and hundreds of thousands of human bodies, skeletons, and millions of grave goods have ended up in museums all across the United States and all across the world. And it does seem as though there is a transformation of attitude about it. Some of these things uh, have been returned, including those very um, for, those aforementioned Peruvian artifacts. Mm -hmm. uh, the Macron administration in France seems very open to the idea that some of the Senegalese stuff and and other African artifacts that that is are, that are on display in museums don't necessarily belong there. I don't know. Do you have a sense of how pervasive that is? Are these bugs or features? 
Well, starting actually about 50 years ago, there was a massive movement uh, in, in Native American tribes to try to reclaim um, their stolen ancestors and sacred objects that were in U.S. museums. And after decades of protests, this actually led to a U.S. federal law uh, called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act um, that has facilitated the return of uh, almost 2 million grave goods, uh, more than 100,000 skeletons, and 15,000 sacred objects. Um, so, you know, the, of course, the flip side of theft is return. And so for Native peoples, um, getting things back is incredibly important, um, but also doing it in the right way. Um, and so there's this kind of reparative element um, to the repatriation movement, this movement to get things back from museums to communities. And what's happened in the U.S. has really inspired and been a part of global conversations. Um, so you have many European powers uh, that uh, European colonies that were are trying to untangle the mess that was made through all this um, thievery um, that transpired over the last several centuries. So, you know, you probably know that in 2019, this debate really boiled over in the International Council of Museums uh, over actually the definition of a museum, which they wanted to change. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think some of the pushback was, well, I mean, and, and it was much more uh, comprehensive than just the thing we're talking about. But the thing we're talking about was certainly in there. And I think there were some museum people pushing back saying, well, what good does it do if there's no African artifacts in any museum, you know, in New York or Paris? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, how, how is that good for anybody? Uh, this is going to have to be the last question of the show. I apologize. I'm running out of time sure. here. But, but react to that. Yeah. You know, there is this notion that if you start returning things, the floodgates are opened and museums will have to shut down, that they'll literally go out of business um, but that's a bit of a red herring. It's just not the case. You know, in Denver, I was at one of the, the, the most proactive museums to return stolen items. And even after decades of work, less than 1% of our anthropology collection was returned. Mm. So really what most communities are focused on are those most sacred objects, those objects that are most central to their cultural lives and their stolen ancestors whose, um, whose possession in museums they find uh, a deep violation of their sense of human rights and dignity. And so that's really what we're talking about. There's no tribe that I know of, no indigenous community I know of, that doesn't want to share their culture. They just want to do it in a way that's respectful, in a way that honors their uh, cultural lives and who they are. All right. We got to go. Perfectly put. Great place to land the plane. Chip Colwell, thank you very much. The book is Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits. Once again, thanks to Abby Levine. Abby Levine, this is a great debut for a young producer.